Welcome to My Patriot Brain, the show that unleashes all that freedom and liberty locked away in my synapses. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Mather. Today is Thursday, February 16th, 2023. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. So I was talking to a friend the other day, and I was, he asked me to kind of describe the podcast. And I said, well, I talk about psychology and politics and sports, and I, I like to think there's something for everyone to hate in it. And he said that that was a pretty good line, that maybe that should be my description for the show. There's something for everyone to hate. Uh, so anyway, um, I, I, I talk about the things that are in my brain. I have a very eclectic set of interests, and, and so I discuss, and as, as one listener uh, pointed out on social media the other day, uh, and I do have an eclectic set of interests, but uh, if you were just talking to me in a bar or talking to me someplace else, this is what you'd be talking to me about. So, uh, All right, so one thing I want to talk about is, is the idea of the flipped classroom in the university. And so this was something that always bothered me when I was a professor, right? It became very trendy in circles, and I understand it now in the context of the, you know, the larger kind of cultural war, critical race, um, progressive Marxist, um, you know, fiasco that we have going on in America. So the flipped classroom is the idea that the students are the ones that do the, are, you know, do the work, and then the teacher shouldn't be standing up on the, the sage on the stage, shouldn't be up there standing up there talking about their expertise. The students should be the ones doing all the work. But it's not that simple, right? That even my way of characterizing that makes it too simple. So, you know, as a young professor, I immediately said, well, wait, this is ridiculous. So I'm getting paid the salary to go stand there and share my expertise with these people. Yet you're wanting these people who are paying money to receive my expertise to do the work while I don't do the work. It just seemed like a really a way of being very lazy to me. It's, and it, but I understand it now in the, in the context of, of all the critical theories, right? So you're taking power from the powerless, right? So you're giving the, uh, the power to the, the students and empowering them. But you know what? They were already empowered to study the material and learn as I taught it to them anyway. And it was they're not passive receptacles. You ask them questions. They engage with you uh, in the course of the, the guide through the material. Uh, they could also have learned themselves. They could have bought books, and they could have taught themselves. So there's other ways to learn, too. But the flipped classroom always seemed very um, improper to me uh, as a philosophy. It seemed like a way for professors to get out of doing the work uh, and, and come up with games and things that are not really teaching things. Uh, if you're teaching chemistry or teaching biology, you need to teach those things. You need to get, there's material they need to know. When I taught biological psychology, we couldn't get to interesting discussions uh, at the end of the course that we would have without going through you know, really three or four chapters of vocabulary uh, as they had to understand all the anatomy and physiology of the brain and the, the nervous system and the entire body. Um, to understand movement, you've got to understand muscles. So you had to understand a, a, crash, a crash course in biological terms before we ever got to the other stuff. And there wasn't going to be a, hey, let's sit in a, in a group and play games while the professor plays on their phone or something like that. We we're getting to work. Uh, so I never liked the flipped classroom, and now I understand that uh, it's very Marxist. Uh, the Hunter Biden laptop letter that was signed by all those intelligence officers just in time to affect the, the 2020 election. They, remember they said they showed all the hard, that, that the laptop letter um, signed by the intelligence officers showed that um, they thought that the Hunter Biden laptop um, showed all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Um, you know what showed all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation? That letter is what did. Speaking of the 2020 election, uh, the Brunson Brothers Supreme Court case that's looking at whether or not members of Congress violated their oath for not looking into uh, the election fraud allegations that were brought on the, on the floor of Congress. Uh, remember, they got shot down on January 6th, uh, and the Supreme Court, they skipped a lot of steps. Supreme Court heard uh, their argument, and then apparently 
they said no, but then apparently they came back with another argument they amended it with, and the Supreme Court is going to go to conference tomorrow to discuss that. So keep an eye on that. Uh, I believe it was official Brunson Brothers, SCOTUS um, is their Truth Social account, which is the, the account that they use to kind of keep people up to date on what's going on with it. Uh, so I was watching the Major League Baseball channel yesterday, and this proves to you that it's, just, it's not all about Newsmax. I do watch other things. And one of my favorite pitchers in the 1980s was Dwight Gooden. Pitched for the Mets. He came up at age 19. He had an incredible fastball, incredible curveball. Um, I just I loved watching him pitch. He's my favorite player. Uh, he was especially good in the 80s when he was on drugs. Like the cocaine helped him apparently pitch really well. Um, but he threw a no hitter in 1996 when he was a little bit older, and and I'd never heard him talk about it before. And he was talking about it in the interview, and they said, "Well, what what did you think of that no hitter? Was that kind of one of your defining moments?" And he said, "Yes, but it was special to him for a different reason." Uh, he said in 1996, it was the last game that his dad, who had taught him how to play baseball, saw him pitch. Uh, and then he went into the hospital and never came out. Uh, so I thought that was a very moving um, context to the 1996 no-hitter that Dwight Gooden had pitched. Uh, since we're talking about sports, uh, the Super Bowl was last week. Uh, I talked about that in the last episode, but I watched it the normal way I watch NFL things since uh, 2020. Uh, I skip, I don't watch the commercials, I don't watch the pregame. Uh, because it's all just super woke, and I can't stand it. Uh, but if you just stick to the football, then it's tolerable, uh, and you don't have to look at all the messages on the helmets or in the end zone. They, they do usually a pretty good job of cropping out the end zone message, uh, so you'd only see it if you were at the stadium. Um, but anyway, so it, it, it looks like normal football without all the political messages if you skip all the other stuff and just watch it almost like a game film that doesn't have any sound to it. Uh, but apparently in the middle of all this, I miss Chris Stapleton uh, playing the national anthem. I, I, I believe that happened. Uh, I didn't see it. I haven't gone back and seen a clip of it. I haven't confirmed that, but I did see something that made me think that Chris Stapleton, uh, the country singer, uh, did the national anthem, and I really would have enjoyed that. Uh, he's one of my favorites. Um, more, uh, more sports and politics here. I guess this kind of transitions. Uh, so Senator Tommy Tuberville, right, former Texas Tech Red Raider coach, um, He's a Republican senator from Alabama. And it, it reminded me, and I don't know why it's been so long since I had thought about this, but it reminded me of the other Republican head college football coaches that have made attempts at politics. And so, of course, Tom Osborne won a congressional seat in Nebraska, and then he ran for governor and lost, but he was Congressman Tom, Tom Osborne. Uh, and then Bud Wilkinson from the University of Oklahoma ran for Senate in 1964. All of these were Republican, uh, Republican college football coaches uh, that ran for office, and Tuberville and Osborne won, and Wilkinson didn't win. So today I want to talk a little bit about a new article in Scientific American called Let Teenagers Sleep. Uh, it's written by the editors of Scientific American, and it'll come out in the February 2023 issue of Scientific American. And so what they found is they found a, a connection between sui daily suicide rates and sleep for teenagers. And so suicide rates are the highest on school days and highest during the school year, and they're the lowest on weekends and they're lowest on, um, in the summertime and, and over school breaks. And so the argument that they make, and it's really a pretty compelling physiological argument to it and behavioral argument to this, uh, is that schools need to start later. And there's a lot of other problems with that. Uh, it's not just a, a singular, let's start schools later, but it's affecting the mental health of teenagers. And they, they've got neurological data to back that up and, and behavioral data with the suicide data to back that up too. So on average, teenagers need nine to, about nine hours of sleep. And on average, they get about seven hours of sleep. And one of the things with being a teenager is during that you know, time of life in, in puberty, uh, the circadian clocks shift by a few hours, and they shift later. And so 
teenagers stay up later and they sleep later. And it's not just because they're lazy. They, they, they break down a lot of those myths about lazy teenagers uh, and, and needing to sleep all the time. And they, they tie it to the neurological data. And it completely makes sense to me based on everything I know about sleep cycles and everything, everything else. So they stay up later and they sleep later because their brains or their circadian rhythms are tied to that right now. So they, they can't, they didn't make that change consciously. And also to get the right kind of sleep, um, you've got to have, you've got to capture the restorative sleep and the REM sleep. And so they're not getting that because of their sleep cycles if they just go to bed earlier. So if you put a teenager to bed at nine o'clock thinking that they're going to get more sleep before they get up at five or 6 a.m., uh, it's not helping them because they're not, they either don't go to sleep or their, their sleep cycles aren't in the right phases at that point because their brains weren't ready to go to bed yet. Uh, and so going to bed earlier isn't the answer for them getting more quality sleep. Uh, it really would be for the school day to start later. And, and we see that at our house. We've got a late start days uh, one day a week. And it makes a huge difference for the happiness of the family. I mean, I see the kids are, are just so happy and um, rested. And it's different. It's not the same as just putting them to bed early. Uh, so going to bed earlier isn't the answer. And of course, it's tied to depression and all kinds of other things. But the, the key of it is, if you've got, you know, s the sleep issues lead to mental health issues. And not for everybody, right? But they, they do for a lot of people. And they can make it more difficult, more challenging for a lot of people who are prone um, or predisposed in some way or have other things going on that, that um, would lead them to have a, a mental health issue like depression. Uh, we'll go with depression as the most common one. And so the late start school day would be something that would fix that. And of course, it would create other stresses that could lead to depression, other mental health problems too. So we're just looking at this in isolation at this point, which is what scientists do. And then you zoom out and try to figure out if you can, if, is that going to create more stress for people? Um, because now there's a work issue with people trying to get to work on time and other things like that. But the key to it is, is that, you know, teenagers need more sleep. And so you're going to have to be vigilant about how much sleep they get. You have to be vigilant about all the other mental health cues to suicide. Um, but it's just heartbreaking when you see the the article has a, a color-coded chart um, with the days of the week that uh, the suicide rate for teenagers, ages 8 to 17. Ages 8 to 17. That's 8-year-olds and 9-year-olds and 10-year-olds, right? All, and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. And it's just heartbreaking to realize that as that thing hovers around three, um, you know, an average of three on each day and it goes up and goes down depending on the day, really. Those are human beings who took their own lives. Uh, that's heartbreaking. And so anyway, I encourage you to check that out and read it, um, draw your own conclusions, think about your own solutions in your own school districts, whether it would work or not. Um, but it's just one piece of the puzzle uh, that goes with keeping our kids safe and keeping them safe from themselves, really, in this case. And now it's time for the Patriot Brain Line. So we've got a listener from Oklahoma City uh, that sent me a video about the Ohio, Ohio chemical spill, and he sent it to me before uh, the mainstream news media had picked up on it. And so you know, his comment was, zero media coverage on this seems fishy, and he was absolutely right. And it took a while over the weekend cycle for people to pick up on it. But there was, you know, in Ohio, the, the chemical uh, train collision, explosion, controlled explosion that launched all these chemicals in the air, uh, and... You know, some media says everything's fine. Other media say, hey, we should look at this. And, you know, between Flint, Michigan, the, the Tuskegee syphilis studies and the MK Ultra program where, where the CIA dropped LSD in the water, uh, we have every reason to distrust the government handling of this. And it doesn't mean, I'm not saying that they're handling it poorly, um, but we have every reason to ask a lot of questions about that. And if you live there, uh, you have every reason to maybe pack up and go someplace else for a while and take your family with you um, out of an abundance of caution. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'd say that that's something that's concerning for everybody and we should pay attention to. 
A uh, listener from the Lone Star State. What social scientific studies, if any, do you think are often misrepresented and weaponized for political gain? Well, I would say definitely the way that conservatives are portrayed. So an ex one example would be the authoritarianism scale for years. Uh, it correlated very highly with other measures of being a conservative. Uh, and so the idea was that conservatives are authoritarian. So authoritarians right, um, demand conformity to everything, you know, everything that progressives are doing now. Um, and I've talked about that other places. Um, but initially, you know, for, I say initially, for 50 years, authoritarianism um, was, was uh, viewed as being, you know, the examples would be Hitler and conservatives would be the examples of that. And ultimately what they found was that the way the questions on the scale were written were ways that conservatives would answer affirmatively and liberals wouldn't. But if you, you could flip the questions around to other issues and find the same thing and find that both liberals and conservatives are authoritarian. And so I, I wrote a number of articles about this a few years back. Um, but the uh, you know, authoritarianism can happen for you know, liberals, conservatives, anybody can, can be, uh, you know, falls on the range of being authoritarian or not. But I think that would be a great example of, um, of the, that type of bias. So liberal biases infect every part of the process, from the writing of the scale questions in this case uh, to interpreting the data uh, of the bias scales, all of it, and then, of course, and pitching it to the public and other scientists. Uh, you, you know, the new trend, I think, is to frame climate denial, right? you know, climate change denial, um, vaccine hesitancy, those things as conservative mental disorders. That's, they're making the case for that. If you look through the articles, you see all the, all the timely articles now are about those things and how conservatives are racist and con conservatives are afraid of immigrants and conservatives are you know, xenophobic, right? And cl the climate deniers and the vaccine hesitancy. Uh, I think those things finding their way into, into social psychology and is you know, purported science, right? We do a study on this and we find it. And I've had arguments with um, very liberal um, scientists who have wanted to bring me onto their projects for a conservative perspective, and then, you know, they've got a bunch of liberals and they've got one conservative on there because they really want to have a different perspective, and then they don't like anything I have to say because, you know, they think I'm wrong about everything. Uh, and then we end up not working together. But, um, but that's for exactly that reason, right? So we want you to, they, they bring you in, me in, and say, we want you to explain to us why conservatives are so wrong about all these things. It's like, well, they're not wrong. You're wrong. You know, Jonathan Haidt um, was resisted very heavily for not fitting his narrative when he came out with the moral foundations theory that showed that um, conservatives evaluate, um, you know, moral, they use all of the pillars of moral foundation when they evaluate information. Uh, liberals only use a few of them. Um, Jonathan Haidt uh, is not a conservative. Like, he, he's, a, he's a progressive. He's a good guy. Um, he's a progressive who's okay with the fact that conservatives exist in the world. Uh, and, and he thinks that maybe they may have something of value. If you listen to him actually talk about politics, he's extremely progressive, and he's not going to change his mind about any particular stances. But he doesn't think that conservatives should be purged from the earth. So he takes a lot of flack from the other progressives. And people say, people think, oh, he's a friend of conservatives, which is one of those things where conservatives will put up on a pedestal anybody who doesn't want them completely annihilated from the earth, and they'll see them as one of them. Uh, right, like uh, you know Kanye West and others who are not conservatives, um, but we we tr we try to pretend like they are um, when they're not. Elon Musk is not a conservative. Uh, I know I'm, I'm veering off the course of the social psychology question that, that you asked me, uh, listener from from the Lone Star State, but um, it's it's something that conservatives need to work better at. It's just you know not falling for that trap of it's somebody that people a media darling that people like. That just doesn't hate us. But anyway, so all right. So Jonathan Heights, what I'm talking about. Lee Jessam is another one as well. Um, you know, Jessam is not a 
uh, he's not a conservative. He's, he's more of a libertarian, but he's a true open-minded critical thinking scientist. And he's, that has led him to some conservative conclusions. And so he's vilified by the left. Uh, you can go find him on, on Twitter and see the shots that he takes um, where he posts all the articles of people that, that say he's racist and, and everything else. And, and I've, no, I've known Lee for a long time, and, and he is absolutely not racist, but that's been the way he's been portrayed lately in very controversial, very high levels of places, as have some others. Um, but anyway, so I would say that those are, the, those are kind of the, the scientific study. They, they turn into experiments that try to support their theory of how things work, and, and they frame the questions, and they do it in a way that makes it extremely biased, and they get what they want. They take it out, and the media runs with it, right? The Atlantic loves to run with those type of stories. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of what my take on that. Uh, you can contact me through the Patriot Brain Line. Uh, you can leave a voice message through Anchor. You can message me through True Social or email me at the email address that's listed on my website, theconservativesocialpsychologist.com. Uh, we've got a new feature to the podcast. It's, it's listener support. Uh, independent podcasts thrive with private investments that offset the time and financial costs of equipment, software, writing, producing, editing, and on-air talent. Please consider supporting My Patriot Brain with a small monthly donation. You can use the support button on the Anchor podcast page or the support this podcast URL in the show description on Spotify and iHeartRadio. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're strong together. Now it's time for my closing thoughts. Teen suicide is a complex issue. If we can use neuroscience to help us stay vigilant and look for warning signs, we have a better chance of reducing them. Coming off of the COVID-19 global pandemic, there was a substantial disruption to the behavioral patterns of people. Coming of age now has created new challenges for teens. Listen to their brains and help them out. As Jack Welch said, we need every brain in the game. Till I catch you next time, play hard and have fun. Listen to My Patriot Brain on Spotify, Anchor, and iHeartRadio. Follow me on Parlor and True Social. Check out my other content at theconservativesocialpsychologist.com.